0: everybody here today. Man, there's a great crowd today, and so it's time for Kids Church, and I know the Shoulders Clan, they're ready for you, so if you're fifth grade and under, you are free to go. And hey, we have a special guest with us today. In fact, it's his first time with us, and so, hey, Adam, can you uh, hold Cole up and do the, maybe, no, uh, maybe do the, like, the Mufasa and Lion King That is Cole Hinton. That's Adam and Lauren's newest son. And uh, he's what, three weeks old? Yeah, three weeks old. So, hey, I'm glad to see all of you here today. We're in part two of our series called True Riches. And the cor- over the course of this series, we're asking the question what is my relationship with my finances doing to my heart? And, and I've told you, I said last week, you know, if you, this was your first time here or you're joining us online for the first time, you, you tune in for a great time because we're going to talk about money, right? And that's what every preacher always talks about, right? They always talk about money. It's the first time you show up to church in six years and they're preaching about money. And so, hey, if I said last week that I think Christians ought to give more money to the church. And I told you last week that would be the last time I would say that, except for when I say it at the beginning of every sermon. So... 25 million 25 million that was the number that my friend said to me and and a few others as we were talking about how much would be enough how much would would be enough would there be a a point in life where we would have enough where it would be okay to stop striving for more to 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 keep pursuing more and for my friend his number was 25 million Everyone involved in the conversation had their own number. I remember thinking to myself, man, my number's not anywhere close to that. Uh, I'm, I don't have as nice a taste as he has. But, but I still had a number in mind. And the truth is, is no matter what number that all of us in that conversation had in mind, if we ever reached it, we'd likely still struggle with our efforts to stop pursuing more, to stop reaching for more, because it's just the nature of, of that kind of thinking. So let me ask you this morning, and you don't have to say it out loud, okay? Do you have a number? What, what's your number? May, maybe it's not a number. Maybe it's just a concept of enough. Is there a size, a house that would that you would never go beyond, a, a type of car that you would never upgrade from? What would be enough for you? Is there a material possession or a lifestyle that would bring contentment for you? Maybe Maybe in our heads we think there is, but I want to tell you that I'm not so sure of it, at least in our thinking. Because see, here's the thing, contentment, contentment is the posture of a heart that rests peacefully in, in our present circumstances, no matter what they look like. No matter what they look like, we are, our heart rests peacefully in our present circumstances. Present circumstances, good, bad, indifferent, our heart rests peacefully. That's what contentment is. is it, contentment is that healing medicine that helps us feel satisfied rather than restless. But it can be hard to grasp, especially when we live in a culture that is driven by so much consumer mentality. And you look around and, I mean, I don't have to convince you that we live in a culture that is driven by consumer mentality. I mean, think about what's getting ready to come up in in two weeks, right? Black Friday, the biggest shopping day of the year. It's a consumer. You need to start now if you're going. Uh, You'll get there by... uh, that wasn't nice. Sorry. Uh, but we live in a culture that is, is driven by that. Think about this. Think about this. The, maybe the greatest piece of evidence for our lack of contentment is, is the consumer debt problem. Think about it. We live in one of the most prosperous economies in the history of the world. In the United States in the 21st century, it, it is one of the most prosperous economies in the history of the world. And, and even with that, there's still a large fraction, a large fraction of the population, that struggles to pay their bills. In fact, they fall further and further behind in their debts each month. How is that possible? How is it possible that, that in an economy like ours, in a, in a country like ours, that people still struggle with, with that kind of thing? I would say it's because we live in a consumer-driven ment- a culture. Maybe the prevalence of consumer debt in in our culture is merely a symptom of of a deeper problem. I want to offer this to you. I I think there could be a sin pattern that is so so pervasive, so normalized that that we're blind to it, even as it consumes our lives and it hinders our ability to connect us to God. Let me connect it for you this way. Think about this. Uh, Imagine this is kind of a ridiculous scenario, but, but think about it. Imagine a Christian community, a church community that was rampant with, with sexual sin. Imagine standing out in the lobby of our church and you hear one of the church elders bragging to, to somebody else about cheating on his wife. You'd be confused by that, right? That, that would not make sense in any context, right? So you turn, turn around from the conversation and you hear a friend of yours bragging about making advances and flirting with a coworker while both of them are married. Could this be a faithful church? If you were to look at that church and say, could this be a faithful church that to- while even tolerating such brazen sin? The obvious answer is no, right? No, they couldn't. it couldn't be a faithful church. And I know that example sounds ridiculous, but, but our wealthy society has cultivated this kind of public and pervasive normalization of another sin. The sin of coveting. We, we tend to think of coveting as, as wanting somebody else's stuff, right? But, but coveting isn't just about the desire to steal or to take somebody else's stuff. Coveting at its core is simply the belief that if I had more, I'd be happy. If I had more, I, I would be okay. It, it's a yearning, it's a striving that constantly causes us to seek more, to pursue more, to go after more. It, it's a form of idolatry that leads us away from God. Now, you probably don't hear people out in the church lobby bragging about their, their sexual sins, right? But we've probably all been out in the lobby and overheard some small talk about uh, the things that we want to experience uh, or, or buy. Being unhappy with our car and wanting a new one. Uh, chatting about so-and-so's new house that they bought and maybe even how much they paid for it. Any of these seemingly innocent topics can be neck deep in covetousness. It might be easy to criticize a person who's daydreaming about whether their number is 25 million or, or more or, or less. But when we experience envy over a friend's kitchen remodel or, or a jealous twinge at the thought of someone else getting you know, the newest electronic gadget, whatever update they're at to on the iPhone, we're all guilty of that same type of sin. Whether we're chasing millions of dollars or just another day's wages, each of our human hearts is prone to covet what other people have here's something you might see interesting at least I found it interesting as you study the Bible the the sinful desire that leads us away the sinful desire that for more that leads us away from the heart of God it, it's present both when we when we covet when we covet material blessings and when we sin sexually in fact sexual sin and coveting are, are linked together throughout the Bible both for example both sins are prohibited in the original Ten Commandments you find you find Uh, commandments against both of those. The Apostle Paul wrote this. He said, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. The writer of Hebrews, um, he writes about a pair of commands in immediate succession related to, to sex and money. He said, Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said i will never leave you nor forsake you now it'd be easy for us to agree and that unrepentant flagrant sexual sin indicates a lack of faith it lacks true devotion to jesus but the bible says that the same is true for unrepentant flagrant coveting both involve disregarding healthy boundaries and limits in our, in our individual human lives. Ambrose of Milan wrote over 1,600 years ago, he wrote that the only difference between a greedy man and an adulterer is that one has an inordinate love for physical form, the other a desire for a farm, a rich estate. So that's the only difference. God gives us healthy boundaries in our finances and in our purity. Violating these boundaries by by pursuing ungodly sexual fulfillment and by spending too much are both rejections of God's plan for human flourishing. N.T. Wright, a a New Testament scholar, said this. He said sexual purity and financial generosity were to be built into the Christian DNA from the start, from the beginning. These two things, sex and money, I know things that we don't want to talk about in the church, but, but they're not side topics for God's people. These are central issues for the ethic of Christ and His church. Our culture teaches us to be generous with sex and to closely guard our money, but God's Word teaches us to be generous with our money and to closely guard our sexual purity. It's a complete reversal. We, we tend to take for granted things that like, like access to food and water. Think about this. You're sitting in a, in a climate-controlled room right now, right? John Knight, you, you can vouch that this is a climate-controlled room, right? All right. We all know where our next meal is coming from. If you don't, lunch is provided after, so so now you know, all right? So just the, just knowing those two things make us part of the most prosperous people in the world. Just those two things, being able to sit in a climate-controlled room and knowing where our next meal is going to come from make us among the most prosperous people in the world. And we tend to take for granted things like uh, access to food and clean water, a bed, clothes, and, and And yet, even in the midst of all of this abundance that we have, we've been seduced by the pursuit of of a nicer lifestyle. We find ourselves struggling to even give 10% of our income away. The early church collectively prayed, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. And God answered the prayer generously, entrusting uh, them with enough funds to buy mountains of bread. And He does even for us today. And instead of sharing it, though, where where he intended it, what did we do? We ate our fill. And then we used what was left to get nicer homes and nicer cars and nicer vacations and whatever else there was until there was nothing left to share. According to to the writer of Hebrews, this sin is in the same category as living a life of unrestrained sexual promiscuity. I want to make a bold statement, and, and you can disagree with it, that's fine. But, but I believe this is true. I believe spending all of our income on ourselves in, in pursuit of fulfillment to the detriment of our generosity is like regularly committing adultery. Let me say that again so that you really think about it. Spending all of our income on ourselves in pursuit of fulfillment to the detriment of our generosity. That means that we, we don't give away money because we're, we're pursuing nicer things. is like regularly committing adultery. What has led us so far away from God's vision of joyful contentment? Because let's be honest, we are all coveters. We live in a society where coveting is normalized. It's like the frog that's put in the, in the boiling pot of water and he doesn't realize it's, it's boiling till the, that he's boiling until the water's too, too hot. It's too late. We're surrounded by that kind of environment. So we need someone from the outside of, of the pot to, to help us. And thankfully, God has already provided a path for escape. God invites us to a greater joy, a path away from the treadmill of coveting. As one preacher said, there are two ways to be rich. One is to have a lot of money, and the other is just to not need a lot of money. The key to this kind of joy is contentment. And as we learn to embrace contentment, you'll paradoxically experience gain. Life is better when we let go of coveting and we stop striving after more. It just is better that way. Paul shared this same view with Timothy when he said this. He said, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can't take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will all be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into a senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And then listen carefully to what he says here. He says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Paul is going directly against uh, our American ethos here, isn't he? The the desire to be rich is is senseless, he says. It's It's harmful. It's a root of many evils. That's what Paul said, not me. So if you have a problem, take it up with him. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't work hard to provide for our families. Or that even having wealth is, is sinful. Paul said it's the desires for that that are sinful. It's the desires for that wealth that's harmful. And Paul understood this. Paul, Paul was a bivocational preacher. He worked hard. He was a temp maker. And he always encouraged people to, uh, to provide for their families. In fact, Paul would say, if you didn't work, then don't eat. Like, you, you haven't earned it. You, you, you haven't provided work. Paul, Paul was not anti-work. He was just anti-distraction. He was reinforcing Jesus' perspective that that life is about more than just money and possessions and stuff. He was reinforcing the, the idea that the things that we covet make empty promises that will never lead to a satisfactory life. They can't fulfill us. The the materialistic desires for riches fueled by coveting, it's not anything new. It's it's been happening since the beginning of time. It dominated Egypt during the time that the Israelites were were captives there. God delivered them from this system in the Exodus. And He wants that same thing for me and you. He wants to be able to deliver us from from this culture of, of pursuing more and more and more. Pharaoh's world. It was a world of scarcity. It was a world of taking. If you didn't take food and labor and wealth from others, it would be taken from you. The strong ruled and the weak served. But God brought the Israelite people out of Pharaoh's economy and into his economy, an, an economy of abundance, and, You know where manna bread from heaven was available every day, where the strong were to care for the weak. There was even a day for, for not working, a, a Sabbath day, a rest day, a day to, to take a break from the, the coveting power that's on the human heart. Walter Brueggemann said this, he said, if we trace from Adam to Moses, we might suggest that the core story is a story about coveting. But God came to break through that that core story, teaching His people that He alone was their sufficiency, that Christ was all that they would need, that He is all that we would need. And that having more stuff would never bring fulfillment. You know what you want when you have more? More. You just pursue more. The, the writer of Ecclesiastes, he says this, Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. And think about this, and you know this to be true. No one on their deathbed, no one ever wishes that they had built a bigger house or that they had bought a nicer car or they had, they had spent more money on those kind of things, that, that they had built more wealth. No, they don't, they don't wish for those thing, kind of things they wished that they had spent more time with their family or that they had lived a life that was, that was more meaningful. A, a friend of mine a couple of years ago was cleaning out her parents' house after both of, of them had died. And she said to, to me one day, not long after that, she said, I spent all day cleaning out all of my parents' stuff from their house. And I could only ask this question, why do we hold on to this stuff so tightly? Why did they have all of this stuff? The pieces just go back into the box once the game's over. When Paul wrote about godliness and contentment, it wasn't just an empty theory. He had lived it. You've heard me mention this before, but, but you know that really famous verse that, that Paul wrote that's often quoted? That, that one that goes something like this, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? You know, that, that verse, the verse we use to set goals for at the beginning of, of the year, the verse that athletes uh, quote when they're getting ready to, to compete in some athletic event? Yeah, that, that verse. Well, that verse isn't really about any of those things. It's not about goal setting. It's not about uh, accomplishments. It's, it's a verse about money and contentment. Paul wrote these words from, from prison after receiving a large financial gift. But, but prior to those famous words, he said this, and this is me paraphrasing. He said, I, I've, I've done okay. I've been in circumstances that were good, and I've been in circumstances that weren't so good. I've been hungry, and I've been full, and I've learned that the secret to contentment in, in all of those things is Jesus and when I am content in Christ, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. When, when the Philippian church heard about Paul's imprisonment, they, they sent someone with a gift that was you know, a monetary gift and probably a, a big winter coat for, uh, for the, the knights. And Paul wrote these words to let them know about his gratitude for them. But he also wanted them to know that his joy was already secure before their gift had come. That even if they had not sent him this gift, he was okay. He was content in Christ because his contentment, his joy was not dependent upon his circumstances. His his contentment, his joy was found in Christ and Christ alone. Paul had been shipwrecked. He'd been beaten. He'd been imprisoned. He'd suffered greatly. But he'd also died with elites. He'd enjoyed the benefits of being a a Roman citizen. He had had, uh, received an Ivy League level education. Paul knew what it was to be joyfully rich and to be joyfully poor. And the secret to both is Jesus. Paul earned his contentment from Jesus and and millions of Christians have since. Suffering and being in want though, whether that means financially or, or otherwise, they characterized the life of Jesus and many of his early followers. In spite of that, though, in spite of knowing that they were going to suffer, remember what Jesus told his disciples? He said, before you follow me, what do what? Count the cost, right? Count the cost, implying that there's going to be a price to be paid for this. There, there's going to be some sacrifices that you're going to have to make. In, in spite of that. His early church, the, the early followers, the early Christians, they practiced joyful contentment. And it was a hallmark of their faith. The, the Roman government looked at them and said, what? why are they so happy? They're, they're slaves. They're, they're beat up. We've, we've imprisoned them. We've killed some of them. And yet they're still so joyful. Why? Because their contentment was not based on their circumstances, but based on Jesus. West Stafford said of Compassion International, he's the, the former vice president, he said this, he said, joy is a decision a very brave one about how you're going to respond to life. And I love that. I think that's so true. Joy is joy is a decision. It's, it's not just an emotion that comes and goes. It's a decision that, that we're going to have to make about how we're going to respond to life. And I'm just telling you, if you choose to be joyful in Jesus, it has a ripple effect. Even when you're in bad circumstances, even when you're in good circumstances, it has a ripple effect. Think about this. The church in Thessalonica, we're told that the church received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. In other words, things weren't going so great when, when Paul came to them, when, when they became Christians. Things weren't going so great. And Paul told them this. He said, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia. The the Thessalonians, they could have sat in their suffering and they could have wished for a different reality, which we are all prone to to do from time to time. I get it. Sometimes you think, why is this happening? Man, things would just be so much better if, if I was in a different spot, in a different circumstance. But the Thessalonican church, they didn't do that. Instead, they embraced the joy of the Holy Spirit. And the news of their joyful contentment reached even as far as the city of Macedonia. Five years later, Paul described the Macedonian church. Uh, He said said this about them. He said they had picked in a severe test of affliction. So things aren't going well for them. He said their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed and a wealth of generosity. He said they, they mimicked what they saw from the church in Thessalonica. And so when a natural disaster hit the church in Jerusalem... The Macedonians, who who didn't have much, they took up an offering and they sent sent a generous gift to the church in Jerusalem to help them in their time of need. Think think about that chain reaction that took place there. The Thessalonians, they chose joy and hardship. The Macedonians, they learned from it and they mimicked this Christ-like joy and suffering. That joy enabled them them to, even despite their own hardships, to give generously. That generosity met the needs of Christians in Jerusalem. That that story that we still read about 2,000 years later inspires generations today to be generous. And our generosity that is inspired by their generosity inspires others. We had a, a visitor come in the church this week and uh, the, the, the affordable Christmas toys were still out. We, we hadn't Sort moved them to another room yet and sorted them. And by the way, we still need more donations for that. So, so while we're talking about giving generously, give generously to, toward a great cause there. But they came in and they said, uh, they, they asked what all this stuff was. And I told them, I said, hey, it's a, it's a program that we're a part of, that we get to partner with schools and, and other churches. And it, it, it's a great program, but it's dependent upon the generosity of, of so many people. And they said, well, how can we be a part of that? How can I be a part of that? I want to take this back to my church, and and we want to be a part of that. And so I gave them some connecting points, and and they called me later in the week, and they said, you know what, our church is too late for us to get into it, so what can we do to help you guys? I mean, that's incredible. Your generosity inspires generosity in other people. Look, we're all going to face jobs that we don't like. We're all going to face... Uh, at times extended unemployment, the loss of loved ones, debilitating sicknesses, bad circumstances are universal. There is no getting away from bad circumstances in this life, but as followers of Jesus, we are called to put away all forms of covetedness so that when these times come, we can ask ourselves how we're going to respond. And if our value and our identity and our trust is placed in Jesus, we can respond with joyful contentment. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, right? Look, we're playing the long game we got to know that our present circumstances are very temporary in light of eternity. We have to be confident that someday we'll enter into the fullness of God and into and, and, and His presence and, and that our seasons of lacking and hardships, they'll be done away with. And that perspective, that perspective, it can transform our suffering into something incredibly powerful. And it can transform our, our suffering into a witness to the goodness of God, even in bad circumstances. I was reading a couple weeks ago about a, about a preacher who was visiting some missionaries in, who, who were in training. They, they were in a third world country and, and they, this man, this preacher was, who was visiting these men, he was sitting down and they'd offered him just a very meager bowl of rice to eat. And he was grateful for it and, and he's eating it. And while he's eating it, he notices that these missionaries, they're not eating and so they're wearing face coverings, and so all he can hear is their voice, and he, he asked them, he says, Hey, aren't you all going to eat anything? And they said, No, 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 we're fasting, because our ordeal begins next month. Now, these, these missionaries in training, they were Christians who had snuck out of their oppressive anti-Christian country to seek spiritual and theological training. And so the preacher asked them, he said, What do you mean by your ordeal? And here's what they told him. They said, We want to go back to our home and to teach and to train our brothers and our sisters in Christ. And when we return, our extended absence from the country without a visa will get us into trouble, and we'll be punished. We'll be imprisoned, and we will be beaten. We will be tortured, and we will be interrogated. And this is going to last for months, maybe even years. But eventually, they'll let us go. And when they do, we can go and minister. And eventually, if we're ever discovered, we will be executed. But then we'll have rest. Only then will we have rest. We'll have eternal rest in Jesus. Even the veils that they wore were worn in preparation for, for what was about to come. They, they wore these veils so that, so to, to protect each other's anonymity. That way, when they were being tortured, they wouldn't identify other participants in the training. They could honestly say, we don't know who they are. We didn't see their face. And yet, despite those very somber circumstances, the, these missionaries in training, they were peaceful. They were resolute. They were calm. Not only were they financially poor, but they were also facing the threat of real imminent torture and death. The, the visiting minister later said, he said, they talk about baptism differently than we do. We talk about being baptized into new life, and that's true and it's beautiful, but don't forget about the dying part. Baptism symbolizes the death of the old self, death to our own plans, death to comfort and security if these things stand in the way of discipleship. These friends, he said, they spoke of being baptized into the death of Jesus and they knew that it it might literally mean their own death at the hands of their oppressors. You know, when I read something like that or I hear stories like that, I can't help but be humbled by that. I want to learn how to have that contented peace of those kind of persecuted leaders. I want to learn to lean on Jesus just as hard as they do. Now, we might not ever be called to be imprisoned for Jesus, but we do have the opportunity to stretch our giving just beyond our holy 10%. Now, obviously, martyrdom is the ultimate act of generosity, right? Literally giving up your life for God. And I'm not likely to become a martyr anytime soon, and you're not likely to become a martyr as long as we live in this country. But I can be a living sacrifice, generous in my giving and joyfully content in every circumstance of my life. As we wrap up our time this morning, I, I want to make sure I clarify one point. So often when we hear teaching uh, uh, that touches on any of the issues that we're talking about this morning, we often feel guilt and shame and, and those kind of things take over. Duty takes over. We, we zone out and we just kind of shut down. We move on. We we. When we see a moral requirement that, that looks painful or awkward, we, we just skip the page, we tune out the sermon, we, we exit the conversation. But I, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page with this, that our invitation from God is to a joyful relationship driven by gratitude and contentment and trust and love, not obedience to a law, not, not a guilt trip into a different lifestyle change. Rather, He invites us into abundant life. And look, tuition in Jesus' school of discipleship, it's set on a sliding scale. The, the price of admission is everything that you have. But if you enroll, you gain everything that the God of the universe has to offer, including eternal life. It's a high cost of following Jesus. And it's only acceptable if we believe in the reward. Because after all, profit is, is what you gain, right? Profit is what you gain minus what you invest. And Jesus says you've got to invest it all. You've got to invest everything. But the reward The reward is greater than anything that you or I could ever imagine. God says, give me everything, all that you are, and I will give you everything that I am. And some people, when they hear that call, when they hear that invitation, they they hesitate or they walk away because the cost is simply too high for them. Their, Their view of their own lives too lofty or their view of God too small. One young man met Jesus and he went away sad at what it would cost to follow Jesus because he had great wealth. But others, they gladly jumped in because they knew the reward was too And Jesus knew this would happen. He knew this would happen, so he told stories to illustrate the high cost of following him mixed with the joy of discovery. He, He would say things like this. He said, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. He told another story about a man who, who, who found buried treasure in a field. And when he found this treasure, he, he buried it again. And he went and he sold everything that he had so that he could buy that field so that he could have that treasure. Jesus said, that's what the kingdom of life, it's worth getting rid of, selling everything. It's worth giving up everything because of what you gain in the end. Look, Jesus is the greatest discovery that we can ever make in our lives. He's the treasure that you've been seeking. He's the deal of a lifetime. We, we say it too, sounds too good to be true. This is the only time it's not. It's not too good to be true. And you might imagine that the price to, to gain his tutelage is far too expensive. Remember, though, he doesn't, he doesn't require you to have a million dollars, a good credit score. He doesn't even require, require a, a good track record of good behavior. He just says bring all that you have. I want it all. Bring it all. All all the good, all the bad, all the ugly. Bring it all. And it's perfectly enough. And what we find when we do that is eternal life that's indescribable. And an earthly life that's marked by contentment. That's marked by satisfaction. Because we've learned to trust that Jesus is the the supplier of everything that we need. In just a minute, we're going to stand and we're going to sing a song and um, before we do that, I'm going to pray. But, but here's what I, I, I just want to challenge you with this. This morning, if you're thinking about where your life is at and, and maybe you're not content with life. Maybe, maybe there's just so many things going on in your life right now and you just think, man, if, if, if I just had this or if I just had that, if I just had anything else but what I've got, I would be all right. I want to tell you the thing that you need, the thing that you're missing is Jesus. That's the thing. Money's not going to make it better. A new job's not going to make it better. A new car, a new house, a new spouse, none of those things are going to make it better. I'm telling you, what you need is Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to offer a time of invitation where if you've never become a part of the kingdom of God, if you've never uh, given up everything to gain, what the, to gain the buried treasure, then we're going to offer an invitation, and we're, we're going to uh, give you that opportunity to do so. I'm telling you, uh, we, we've already seen... One baptism this morning, how cool would it be to see another? If you need to make that decision today, make it. Because I'm telling you, a life with Jesus is far greater than anything than we could ever imagine. It's not a promise that life will be easy. Never made that promise. He just said it'll be better. And it'll be better because our eternity is better. Let me pray for us. Father God, we love you. And we are grateful for... um, For the contentment and the peace that we can find in you. Father, may we always look for you for all of our needs. To be the supplier, the provider for everything that we need. And Father, when life throws a curveball and we're not expecting it, we're not ready for it, and it just throws us off balance, may we run back to you and rest in you. Father, help us to, to stop pursuing the the, the pursuit of more for, to, to keep up with our neighbors or, or the church down the road. Father, just help us to be content with you and where we're at. And so, Father, help us most of all to be uh, faithful to you. And so, Father, if somebody here this morning needs to, to give their life over to you, we, we simply pray that they would, that they would make the decision to follow you, to trust in you, so that they could move from, from this coveting uh, to contentment. They could, they could find peace. Because they're content in their life. Because you're in their life. Father, we love you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.